following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church this morning. Glad that you're able to be here for our scripture reading this morning. I'd like to invite you to turn this time to Hebrews, if you would please. Hebrews and the first chapter. Hebrews chapter 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed but you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will." Thus, we must give more earnest heed to what we've heard. It's not merely the word of angels, not the word of men, but it is the word of the Son of God, who is the express image and brightness of God's glory. Amen. We're glad to have Tim and Christina with us, and I introduced them before, but just for those of you that weren't here, we have supported Tim and Christina Gosen since before I was the pastor of the church by uh, about a decade um, and so since 1996, and they've been in Gualaguaychú for about 20 years now, is that right? 
And if you were here earlier and saw the pictures of that church family, uh, when they went, there was nothing. There's a church family there now that fills up, I think, four levels of you know chairs and or bleachers or whatever, and it's just a nice, nice picture there. And the testimonies to hear those, and we've prayed for some of those folks over the years. I think uh, Martine, we prayed for Martine when he had the trouble with his leg and all, and uh, yeah, so that was just one example, but... God bless those folks there, and uh, very nice to see the front of the building come together, a new meeting space for them, and the parsonage is going to be on the second floor, as I understand. I haven't seen it. I actually walked up what I thought were, they were nice stairs, uh, concrete stairs up, but I thought it was kind of precarious because there was no railing or anything. Is that right? Yeah, it's a long flight of stairs up to to the roof of the first level, and there's nothing there, but now there is something there. There's going to be that the parsonage for the future pastor of the church, and so it's a blessing to to, uh, to be able to see that and remember those times that I was uh, that I visited there with them. But now they're visiting with us again after four years, and Tim is going to come and come and bring the word this morning. We're looking forward to it. He gave a great word this morning, and uh, we'll give him uh, 45 minutes or 50 or so to uh, do it again. Okay, so. Brother Tim, come on up here. This brother right here is going to encourage you with his amens, and I'll probably join him from uh, once in a while. Glass of water is for you, okay? All righty. By the way, those stairs do have a railing now, so it's not. And the, the, uh, the terrace over there also has a little wall around. I haven't seen it because that's work that has been done since we've come on furlough. And uh, we sure appreciate your support, your prayers, and also your giving towards that project uh, very generously. And we thank you for that. And we thank you for the uh, years that we've been partnering with Fellowship Bible Church over the years. And um, uh, the fruit is not for us. It's for God's honor and glory, but it's for all who have participated in prayers and love and sending letters and cards and notes and, and support financially and prayers and so we, we, we thank the Lord for having a large community, and uh, we're co-laborers for Christ. Amen. And we just wanted, in Sunday school, just to share that. I'm sure um, if, if the pastor doesn't have the video and if you want to watch it, we'll provide that. So um, we are, we are we're amazed at what God does and can do, and uh, we keep on uh, being amazed. This morning, we saw... In Isaiah chapter one, verse uh, chapter six, verse one, about God's re- revelation, I'd like to do a second. Uh, sometimes second things, you know, uh, are are good. Sometimes they're not as good, uh, as far as films or books or whatever. But I'd like to look at this passage again. If you were turn to Isaiah chapter six, we'd like to look at the responses God revealed Himself. And I think we probably all have read this chapter. We've all. Uh, received teaching about how God, uh, Isaiah saw God uh, and the, the, the glory of God in this temple and how um, he was called by God to give the message to the people of Israel, uh, more specifically to the, uh, to, to the country of Judah, the southern two tribes, and give God's message to them and really um, uh, call them to repentance. And so God will show himself to Isaiah, and that will impress Isaiah in his whole being in such a way that he will respond 
And even though God told Isaiah, they're not going to hear you. And you'll have to preach. And he says, until when? Until, until Israel is a desert because I've, I've uh, sent everybody away in captivity until, you know, the land is, is empty. Uh, just you preach. So he didn't have, just like with uh, Jeremiah also, God did not say, oh, you're going to build a great church or a great congregation or a whole bunch of people are going to follow you. But he continued. Why? Because I believe he, he knew God in a deeper way with this revelation. So we already studied verse 1, um, but I'd like to highlight that here God showed himself as Lord, commanding Isaiah, commanding the people, children of Israel. He showed himself as sovereign, sitting upon a throne. He showed himself as a great God, high and lifted up. And he showed himself as somebody present that filled the temple. Only his robe or the edge of his robe filled the temple. And then I'd like to, for us to read verses 2 to 5. It says, Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Heavenly Father, as we look into the scriptures, may we be challenged by your Holy Spirit. Maybe there's areas in our lives where we have not dedicated them to you. Maybe things that we have harbored in our hearts that we have not get, gotten right. Lord, we pray that you, you might work with your Holy Spirit in our heart and life so that we might respond like the seraphim to your revelation. That every time we, we read your word and meditate upon your word that we might respond even as the temple responded. And as Isaiah responded, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we, I, I'd like to see three responses to God's revelation. Number one, the effect upon the seraphim. How did the seraphim, these angelic beings, respond to the revelation of God, to the presence of God filling the temple there? This word seraphim, it says in verse 2, above it stood the seraphim. This word seraphim uh, means the burning ones. Today we read in, in, in Hebrews also about uh, flaming fires. In scripture, the seraphim only appear in this account. It seems like they are angelic beings whose appearance or service has to do with fire. And we should not confuse the seraphim with the cherubim. Some seraphim were present here when God manifested his glory to Isaiah, and he left an example to Isaiah and to you and I of how we should be before the Lord, how we should act before the Lord. First of all, the seraphim used their wings. It said each of them or each, uh, each one had six wings. So each of these be uh, angelic beings has six wings or or, or three pairs. These were given to them by God 
the day they were created, and with a specific purpose. And I believe that they used those wings for the purpose or accomplishing the purpose for which God gave them. And uh, they covered their faces with two wings. It says, with twain, he covered his face. And this appears to be a response of reverence and respect for the holiness of God. And since they were in the presence of God continually, their wings also covered their faces continually, I believe. Not just here, you know, like when Isaiah was watching, but continually covering their faces. And in the Bible, we have several examples of men of God who have covered their faces or bowed down to earth in respect to the holiness of God. Remember Moses before the burning bush? Elijah, when he hears that small, still voice? Even Abraham, God appeared to him and established a covenant with him, and he bowed down. John, when he saw Christ... Jesus in Revelation, and Christ appeared to him in glory. He, he had been used to seeing him in humility, but uh, he saw him in glory and there in the island of Patmos, and he felt like he was dead. And Isaiah himself here, seeing the Lord sitting on his throne, he exclaims, Woe is me. We also should demonstrate reverence towards God. When we are before him, in his, in, in his presence with prayer, we should not treat him like a buddy. You know, we should reverence God. We should cover our faces, as it were. We don't have wings, but we should cover our faces uh, spiritually or emotionally before him in reverence. But also they covered their feet with two wings. It says, with twain, he covered his feet. And there is a similar expression that Ezekiel makes describing the cherubim or the cherubim, you know, this other class of angels, saying in Ezekiel chapter 1, saying two wings of every one were joined one to another and two covered their bodies. Now, so it is possible that these wings of the seraphim also covered the lower part of the body all the way down to the feet. We're not, we can't be positive or, you know, dogmatic on that, but I believe that they were covering their bodies, the lower part of the bodies, all the way to their feet. And this is a, 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 an expression of respect, taking into account our concept of decorum, or what is appropriate. So the seraphim covered themselves because what was important was not themselves, but the Lord, whom they served. So they did not draw attention to themselves, but directed attention to God. And our apparel also should have decorum. Decorum means behavior and keeping with good taste and propriety. And we should dress with respect towards those we see and also towards God. I mean, why do we put our Sunday best? Not to impress others, but in respect, in decorum. And as we come to the house of the Lord, we respect and reverence the, uh, uh, the Lord whom we serve. But also they flew with two wings. This third set of wings they used to fly. It says with twain he did fly. And this seems to emphasize promptness to fulfill God's orders. Now notice in verse 6, one of the seraphim flew towards Isaiah having a live coal in his hand 
to obey an order from God. So God has not given you and I wings. But he has given us other things. He has given us other things. And he wants us to use them in fulfilling the purpose for which they were intended. Just like he intended these wings to be used as the serpent used it. He has given you a body with specific members, right? He has given you eyes to see that the fields are white unto harvest. Ears to hear his word, his will, and his command to go into the world and preach. A mouth to speak about Christ and to share your testimony to your friends and co-workers and neighbors and relatives. Hands to work for the Lord of the vineyard. Feet to transport you to where God sends you. Abilities, abilities to help others. At least one spiritual gift to edify the church. At least also time time to invest in eternity. That's an axiomoron. <laughs> Opportunities to serve the Lord and others. And, and also resources not only to satisfy your needs, but also to, to share with those that are in need and to support God's work. The seraphim used what God gave them to do what God wanted. Are we doing that? Those seraphim also not only used their wings, but also they used their mouths. Notice what it says in verse 3. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the seraphim were ready to do God's will, serving but also they were occupied exalting God's glory, praising. So using their wings to serve, using their mouths to praise. And what you do and what you say and what I do and what, what I say also should all glorify God. How does Paul put it? Colossians 3.17, And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all to the name. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. So whether we're serving with our talents, our abilities, our mouths, or whether we are praising him, it is all to his glory. So knowing God enabled the praises of the seraphim to have two characteristics. How did they praise God? Number one, they praised him with precision. This praise was based on the knowledge that the seraphim had about God. Now, these seraphim, you know, they were created. They're not like us that have a limited, you know, years of life. So these seraphim were created during probably the first, you know, six weeks of creation. They were created beings, and they had existed all these years until even the time of Isaiah. And they came to know God in a very precise way. And... They didn't say wrong things about God. They say th some things in verse 3 that we read. But they said exact things about his nature and his attributes. And so with their lips, the seraphim exalted three things about God that I'd like to look at this morning. They exalted him with precision, exalting, they exalted the holiness of God. They say, holy, holy, holy. This describes how God is. God is completely different 
from the common uh, profane. That is, you, you could say that metaphys- metaphysically, or, or uh, if, if we look at the definition of the word holy, the original idea of the word holy, kadosh, was to separate or to divide. So this means that God belongs to a sphere, and I mentioned this in Sunday school, to a sphere completely different than everything else. We can't compare to God in a one-on-one basis. He is separated from any other thing or person, and at the same time, he is bigger than they, much more elevated. But also, God is holy morally. Not only metaphysically, he's so different than any of us, but he's holy morally. He's completely the opposite of sin. So this describes the purity of God. God is intrinsically holy, and he calls his people to live holy lives, to live separate lives from sin. But also God is perfectly holy. The seraphim repeated the word holy three times. And that expresses that God is holy in a perfect way. His purity cannot be violated. Daniel calls him the most holy. So the seraphim exalted the holiness of God, but notice also that they exalted the name of God. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. They exalted the name of God. You know, when God proclaimed his name to Moses, when Moses says, I want to, you know, see you, he proclaims his name. He said this, God emphasized his mercy without denying his justice. Let me read this Exodus 34, 5 to 7 for you. It says, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with them there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and the fourth generation. So he was uh, announcing God's name. And here they are praising God's name. He's saying, the Lord of hosts. It's interesting. Remember who was the first one that used this title for God? Anna, Samuel's mother. The Lord of hosts. They exalted his name. The title, the Lord of hosts, highlights the sovereignty of God over all the powers of heaven and earth, especially over the hosts or armies of Israel. He was Lord of hosts, sovereign over everybody, but especially over Israel. In the same way, Jesus Christ is Lord of lords, but especially he is Lord of the believer. So the seraphim exalted the name of God but also the exalted, the glory of God, saying the whole earth is full of his glory. Glory, this Hebrew word kabod, and I'm not saying that because I know Hebrew, but I know somebody that knows Hebrew, and you've probably heard these words before. So this kabod, and I might be slaughtering it, I don't know. It means weight, weight. It is used figuratively to refer to the splendor or copiousness of the majesty of someone. So if we could take all the attributes of God and put them in a bag, 
it would be extremely heavy. And we could describe God as imposing in all his attributes and being. So the essence of God in all his attributes compose this glory. And they say the whole earth is full of his glory. Now man constantly is bringing down the glory of God. They lower God's glory when they give human or animal form to God and begin worshiping figures or statutes or representations of God, and that is idolatry. They also lower God's glory when they say God does not exist. But as believers, we also lower God's glory when something else takes God's place in our hearts or lives. You know, it can be a person to which we pay more attention than to God, or it can be a job on which we depend more than on God. It can be an activity to which we give more importance than to coming to church or to reading the Bible or to praying. But knowing God brought the seraphim to praise God, not only with precision because they knew him, but also with power. Notice, they praised him with power. It says in verse 4, And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. So the posts were, were made, these posts were made of wood, and the doors hung from them. Probably they were also, because most of the, this, this temple was you know, plaqued with uh, gold, but they were wooden posts, and the doors hung from them by the hinges, and these posts shook or vibrated as the force of the voice of the seraphim resounded in the temple. So they, they, they worshipped with enthusiasm. So, so they, that, the way they worshipped, you could say, with all their hearts, if you could say that angels have hearts, right? So the revelation of the nature and attributes of God ought to produce in us also. Worship without equal. As we know God, we should worship him as no other people on the face of this earth can worship him. So the more we know God, the more precise and powerful will our worship be. This is what uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 9.1. I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will for show forth all thy marvelous works. So God wants us to praise him with a whole heart also. That was the effect on the seraphim. But let's now see the effect upon the sanctuary. The seraphim were lively beings. Sanctuary is something, an object. But notice how the sanctuary, this object, responds. Not an intellectual response, but how it is affected by God's revealing himself in his glory here. The effect upon the sanctuary. Here, the, the house, when it says uh, the house um, in verse 4, is talking about the temple. Um, we already described in Sunday school the, the, the dimensions of this temple. But this was the place God accepted the offerings of the people and where the people sought God. And today, the believer is called the temple of the living God in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, right? So when God manifests himself to our minds and hearts, it should produce an effect 
in our lives as it did in the sanctuary when God manifested himself to Isaiah. So the same way the sanctuary responded or the same effect that it had on the sanctuary then can be applied also to our lives as being sanctuaries of the Holy Spirit. Notice, first of all, the posts tremble. Now, we say, well, I don't have any posts. <laughs> but posts tremble. It says, and the posts of the door move. Now, we already saw and explained this looking from the perspective of the seraphim. But now I would like to look at it from the perspective of the sanctuary itself. The post trembled in the face of everything that was going on when God revealed himself. And God wants us to tremble at his word. Notice in Isaiah chapter 66, if you would. Isaiah chapter 66 in verse 2. Isaiah 66 verse 2 says, For all those things hath mine hand made, he is the creator of all things, and all those things have been, saith the Lord, but to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word, and trembleth at my word. So to tremble at God's word means to fear and reverence him. It has the idea of a person that takes seriously what God says. So we need to take God's word seriously. It's not a game, folks. It's not a game. Secondly, the temple was filled with smoke. And not only the post trembled, but also the temple was filled with smoke. That's what it says in verse 4 at the end. And the house was filled with smoke. I believe this smoke represents two things of God. This smoke represents the presence of God. You know, the scriptures describe the presence of a cloud when God would come to dwell somewhere in a special way. It happened in the tabernacle. Exodus 40, 34 says, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It also happened in the temple, Solomon's temple, when that was built. 1 Kings 8.10 says, And it came to pass, when the priests were come out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. So it talks about the presence of God, but also this smoke represents the wrath of God. Scriptures describe the presence of smoke when God manifested his anger against sin. Remember on Mount Sinai? In Exodus 19, when God pronounces those Ten Commandments, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's something just to read those <laughs> and compare those to your life. Can you imagine hearing God's voice speaking the Ten Commandments? No wonder the people said, no, Moses, you speak to us. We can't handle God's voice. It says, And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. So there's where God pronounced these Ten Commandments, His firm position against sin. You can see the revelation of His anger against sin upon Mount Sinai. But also in the temple in heaven. When John describes in Revelation chapter 16, remember the vials, those seven plagues? It says, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God, and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues 
of the seven angels were fulfilled. Remember, these plagues are also called the vials of the wrath of God. So as Isaiah sees this smoke, he's, he's reminded God is angry at sin. God's wrath is upon the people of Israel and upon us because we are sinful. So it is obvious to Isaiah, who is watching this, that God is angry towards his people. He has already given a message of five chapters in Isaiah that time and time again, the people of God have rebelled against him. And God is just and holy, and all violations of his justice will be judged by him. You and I are sinners, and we deserve eternal death. And all the world is under the wrath of God, as Revelation 1, or 3, 19 says. And we have come short from the glory of God, but thank God he had a plan of redemption. And this plan of redemption includes his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sin and for my sin. So our sins were punished on him to offer us freely justification only by grace. Through faith, we can receive the forgiveness of sin and justification. Now, I, now I, re, I ask you, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? If you haven't, would you do that today? If you have, what type of effect does knowing God have on your life? Do you serve him with what you have? Do you praise him with power? Do you tremble at his word? But lastly, let's look at the effect upon the priest. Well, I call him a priest. I mean, some might think that um, Isaiah was there offering an, uh, an offering or bringing a sacrifice as, as somebody from, from the people. Uh, but let's look that at the effect on Isaiah. Verse 5. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because... I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So first, God, before he could deal with his people, he had to deal with his messenger. Before confronting the sins of the listeners, the sins of the herald had to be confronted. And this vision of Isaiah that he had of God affected him in a powerful way. And Isaiah here in this verse evidence evidences five feelings. First of all, Isaiah felt inescapable tragedy. He says, woe is me. This is an interjection or of lamentation. It is the exclamation of those who feel the approach of something bad, a punishment or tragic consequence. The person expressing this, woe is me, realizes he does not have control of the situation and he has no hope of escaping. Isaiah was confronted with the holy presence of God and he recognizes that he deserved something terrible. He knew there was no escape. He says, woe is me. But second, Isaiah felt imminent death. He says, for I am undone. Isaiah thought he was going to die for having seen the glory of God. And that is why he exclaims, woe is me. So when Moses asked God to show his glory, remember, God said, thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And that's why Moses could only see God's back, let's say, but not the full glare of his full glory. God is so glorious that fallen man cannot bear to see 
his full glory. So every time God appeared to someone, he could only see a little of God's glory, but not all. I, as a matter of fact, Isaiah sees the train or the border of his garment. Seeing God high and lifted up often brought people to a sense of imminent death. It happened with Gideon, Manoah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and John. They thought they were going to die. And there are people today that claim to have seen Jesus. But their description of that vision many times does not fit this description. You know, uh, they don't describe it as having this fear as Bible characters expressed how they saw God. But third, Isaiah felt unclean sin. He says, because I am a man of unclean lips. The word unclean means dirty or contaminated in a religious sense. So Isaiah was contaminated by sin. Now, Isaiah was clean in a relative sense compared to King Uzziah. King Uzziah was struck with leprosy, and for the last 10 years of his life, he was unclean, unfit. His son was co-reigning, you could say. He was the, the figure that would do the things. Even though he was, Uzziah was still king, but he was, um, he was secluded. Isaiah could enter into the temple. He's, he could come here and offer the sacrifices or, or come and bring his offering because he was clean. He was ceremonially, he had met the requirements of Leviticus. Compared to Uzziah, he was quite clean. But Isaiah was unclean in an absolute sense. In comparison with a king, the Lord of hosts, Isaiah could only say, I am unclean. While we compare ourselves to others, no, we will not come to a deep and full understanding of our own unworthiness and inability to do something that pleases God. And we will never come to a true, to become true servants of God. I think it's through this, recognizing that he is unworthy, that made him equipped, Isaiah, to serve God. Only when we realize our incapacity to serve adequately a holy God will we be fit to serve a holy God. If we do not recognize the existence and responsibility of our sin, we will not obtain the cleansing of our sins. Because 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, if we recognize them, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. So Isaiah recognized that he had unclean lips, but immediately one of the seraphim will do something for Isaiah that Isaiah could not do for himself. He was going to take away his guilt and purge his sin. And if Isaiah wouldn't have recognized his uncleanness, he wouldn't have, have received cleansing. And that cleansing was absolutely necessary in order to be useful unto the Lord. The Apostle Paul puts it this way to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.21. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified in meat for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. You cannot be useful to the Lord if you're harboring jealousy in your heart or envy or grudge or rebelliousness. It won't work. We need to be clean. We need to, we need to clean ourselves or purge ourselves from these things. And saying he had unclean lips, 
Isaiah recognized three things we also need to recognize if we want to be clean instruments, useful in God's hands. Isaiah recognized that his sin began in the core of his being. Remember, Christ said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So if you have a unclean lips, you have an unclean heart. So what I say first is produced in my heart. So if we do not recognize our selfish motives that draw us to sin with our lips, then, you know, when we confess our sin, we're just plucking fruit. We're not dealing with the roots. Isaiah also recognized that his sin extended to the farthest corner of his life. Lips are a natural frontier, right? You can think a bunch of things, but once you say it, it's already out there. You can't bring him back. So it's like a frontier. It's like limbs. They're extremities. And so this, he recognized sin even when all, not only started in his heart, but went all the way to his extremities, even to his lips. Notice what Isaiah in Isaiah 1.6 says. From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. That's what Isaiah was talking about Israel, but he was even recognizing that in himself. I mean, even my lips, even the furthest part of my heart, when my words already leave my body, they're unclean. But also Isaiah recognized that his sin affected those who lived around him. Unclean lips will pronounce sinful words that will hurt others. So lips are like weapons that destroy James call them full, calls them full of deadly poison. And we have the obligation of speaking to edify the hearers, and it begins recognizing that we have a problem with our lips. Fourthly, Isaiah felt surrounding influence. He says, I dwell in the midst of, unclean, of a people of unclean lips. So Isaiah lived among people, and these people influenced him. Isaiah recognized that he was not alone in this predicament of having unclean lips. All around it, there was this women and men and children and young people and older folks that were sinners also. All around him, people were part of this organized anti-God system that we call the world. And the system is trying to pressure us. But it is not necessary, and it was not necessary then, to be a pagan or an atheist to be part of this world or be influenced by the world. Only, one, only someone would need to live independently from God, his person, or his word, and his will. And you're living like the world. And we are in the same situation we need to bring our attention constantly back to the compass of the word of God. You know, because we, we get sidetracked, we get lost, we, we lose our north when we're out there. And we need to constantly bring our lives to the compass of the word of God to see the direction that our lives are taking and not allow the world's thinking to stick with us no matter how insignificant the idea might be. And you do not need to stop going to church to drift into the world. You only have to get distracted with many things, good things, that are temporal and abandon the best that is eternal. You only have to use all your energies in your job, your family, your home, in such a way that you do not have more energy to serve the Lord. 
You only have to, do, to be so occupied with the things of this life that you no longer have time to serve the God as you did before. The world is constantly trying to influence our lives, and we need to watch and pray. Lastly, fifth, Isaiah felt unworthy privilege. He says, For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What a privilege of being called to serve him in spite of who we are and what we are. Because of all these things, Isaiah felt unworthy to join the holy worship of the seraphim or to communicate the holy message of God. Isaiah saw God in the temple. You know, you and I see God manifested in the pages of Scripture. Just like 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass or a mirror, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as the Spirit of the Lord. Now, when you and I read the Bible, do we read to know God better? Or is it just so that we can cross out the little box and say, I did my Bible reading for the day? What type of effect does God's word have on our life? Do we believe that we can escape from the discipline or from the consequences of our sins? Or do we feel inescapable tragedy as Isaiah? Do we feel that we have a right to live? Or do we feel that we would be dead if it were not by the grace of God? Do we feel we would like to live in this world and enjoy its comforts? Or do we have an aversion to the subtle worldly influences, even over small areas in our heart? Do we feel that we are the best servant God could ever have called? Or do we recognize we are unworthy to be a soldier of the Lord of hosts? May God work in our hearts in such a way with his grace that we could respond as a seraphim, even as the temple, even as Isaiah, in the appropriate way so that we could serve him with our lives. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would receive all the glory. Well, Lord, we do not want to serve you to receive the applause of men. We want to serve you because you deserve it. But we recognize we are unworthy. We have unclean lips, unclean heart, unclean lives. We have to constantly come to your throne of grace, confess our sins, receive forgiveness of our sins, and have that renewed fellowship with you. And we realize many times even we sin unknowingly, and later on we realize how frail we are, how sinful we are, and we pray, Lord, that we might deal with those things. Maybe this morning you have brought our attention to something. Lord, may we not forget that. May we not just let that aside and go on with our lives, but may we deal with every situation so that we might respond correctly to what we've learned of you today. These things we pray in Jesus' name.